0: To you all. It is good to be together. And good morning to those of you at home. We are sad not to be with you. The weather is perfect for this topic, is it not? And beyond that, I'm sure in a way that probably affects Bakerdom more than any if we are feeling hopeless. Following up on Ohio State loss to Michigan could probably not be more timely, could it? And yet, Brad, the Lord has delivered Advent to you on the heels of that shellacking. So, here we are. But beyond that, I don't know where you guys are at with uh, Star Wars. If you still think of Star Wars based on the ones that came out back in my day, when my parents went and saw the movie and then came back and told me and left me hanging as to what would happen with that Death Star until I got to go see it. And I was uh, finally amazed that, you know, somehow a movie was going to end well, only to find out that that was not going to be the only movie. That was not the beginning. That was not the end. It was just a continuation in a saga that continues on. So now there's probably more uh, time put into Andor, some series that's out there, then New Hope, what was episode four, and Rogue One, which came before that. And yet, right at the end of one of those, and uh, really at the very beginning, the, 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 the segue between Rogue One and the New Hope is this possibility that a Death Star is going to be blown up, and through all that's happened, they have the plans to be able to destroy it. At the end of Rogue One, they give these plans to Princess Leia, who's digitally animated into the thing, and they ask her, "What is it? What is it that we have here?" And she says, with one word, she says, "Hope." And here's the here's the problem. What we're going to see with Advent, as I kind of mentioned before, is that we we're going to take these weeks and we're going to look uh, in kind of a different way. You know, normally what we're doing is we're taking a book and we're just Unfolding that book a little bit at a time, making our way through the scroll a little bit more, a little bit more, one chapter, one verse after another. We're going to take concepts these next few weeks. We're going to have some key texts that we're going to look at and ours is Romans 5 today. But rather than thinking about these weeks of Advent, kind of like those old cafeteria trays where everything is segmented and so nothing touches, that's just not the way Advent really works. And you, you heard that even as... Holly read from Romans 5. If you were going to read Romans 5 and say, well, should that be a passage that should be about hope? You could say, well, sure. Should it be about joy? Well, sure. Should it be about love? Well, it, it certainly is. Should it be just about peace? Well, that's in there too. It's, it's more like your Thanksgiving plate probably. Try as you might if you're one of those people when you load up your Thanksgiving plate, everything just kind of blends in together. And that's the way that we're going to look at these things together. These, these four different concepts that lead us to Christmas morning. When we will have church, just so you're all aware. Um, hope is the first uh, sort of topic that we're going to tackle. And yet, what we're going to be talking about today and the way that Paul just used that word, the way the Bible uses the word hope. Isn't necessarily that if Brad and I were having a conversation, I said, well, do you think that the Ohio State's going to make the playoffs? And Brad might say, I hope they will. What is he saying? He's he's indicating that the intensity of that verb has to do with his desire, not really with the certainty of what's going to take place. Ohio State might miss the playoffs. We hope they won't. But the problem is we keep using that word in that sort of a way. We sort of hope this will work. We, the, the rebels are making their way through. Why? Because rebellions are built on hope. But is there any promise in it? No, it's just the possibility that some little sliver of, of redemptive thread might pull long enough and hold tight enough so that we can actually make our way to the end. That's the way we think about hope. But every week, I think what we're gonna have is that Princess Bride quote. You keep using that word. But it just doesn't mean what you think it means. If nothing else, when we're done looking at Romans 5 and all these accompanying texts, what I hope is that we'll have a more robust understanding, a more firm and confident definition of what it really means for us to have what the Bible considers a blessed hope, or what the Bible calls a living hope. Because in so many places throughout the Bible, the word hope is almost synonymous for what it means to actually have attached ourselves to Christ. There are times that we live in this world, and we know that there are realities that are very true. We are weak, and we wander. And oddly enough, Romans 4 and the passage comes right after what Holly read, really address those realities. But in our weakness and in the weakness of others, and in our wandering and the wandering of others, we're often tempted to think that hope is really just kind of being eliminated. That if hope is a white light, that Essentially, everybody else's sin, our weakness, it all just veils it so much so. It just keeps sprinkling it that there's no way that that light is going to shine anymore. And that's just not the way that the Bible speaks. The Bible does address the fact, though, that in our weakness and in our wanderings, that God has both spoken and that he's saved. And that kind of brackets what we look at. That's the reality we bank ourselves on. But the Bible says we are called to one hope that belongs to our call. The Bible says that we are to hold to the confession of our hope. And that when we're talking with others, we're supposed to be able to defend the reason that we have this hope. That's the way that not just Paul, but Peter and other authors describe what it means to be a Christian is to hold tightly to this. What is it? But whatever it is, they're calling it hope. And that feels entirely different than this wishful thinking kind of thing that we talk about. It feels entirely more foundational, more substantial, more, not some like hope that lives in your Valentine's heart. But hope that lives in your biblical heart, more what you think of as your gut. Hope, the kind of thing that drives a soldier into battle, not the kind of thing that that makes somebody just sort of kind of wistfully think that this might happen. We're told that we are born again into a living hope, and we are told that we are waiting for a blessed hope. In other words, hope is the beginning of how we get to know God and it is the thing that we are very much counting on at the end of our days is that we can bank on what God has said and that we can rely on what God has done. But let's take a minute in Romans 4 just before that. in order to understand because Romans 5, 1 begins with, therefore, and so you have to know what it's. Very good, Barb. Well done. Chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Chapter 4, verse 1, he's talking about Abraham. Why? Well, because Abraham is one of the heroes of the Jewish faith. And in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what Paul has been trying to say is that living for the glory of God is probably a good definition of what every single human being was made to do. God is invisible. We are visible. God is everywhere and yet not especially anywhere. And so he calls us to be everywhere for him, to be his image bearers to be the ones who represent him, to be his ambassadors. And he's given us so many gifts and so much strength to do it. And chapters one, two, and three said, no matter who you are, you failed at that. If you're a law keeper, you're not very good at it. And breaking one law breaks the whole law and you're not very good. If we look at those who are outside the Jewish faith, we all recognize they're not doing very well. Nobody has any cause to boast because everybody's guilty, and yet the Jews are going, but we're kind of better, right? He's going to address that at different points in the book of Romans, and as we went through Romans, you might remember how he did. But in chapter four, he says, well, let's just talk about one guy. Let's talk about Abraham. What was it that got Abraham to the place from being Abram to being Abraham? What took him from being some like pig farmer or whatever he was to being the father of our faith? Was it what he did? Because if you track Abraham's story, if Abraham's telling his story, well, he's going to tell you some parts and he's going to leave a lot of other parts out, isn't he? But as God tells Abraham's story, and as Paul recounts Abraham's story, you know what he accents? Not his success, not his strength, his weakness and his failure. That's why scripture says Abraham obeyed God and then he was righteous. No, he believed God. That's the whole point of one, two, three, that if you can't do it, somebody else must have done it. And then you've got to figure out how do you relate to the person that did it? God's the one who does it. He's the one who has it. And so we've got to figure out, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to imitate you? Am I supposed to just follow you and obey you? Yes, yes, yes. But is that foundational to what it means to know you? No. Nah. What's foundational to what it means to know God is to listen to what he says and believe him for one. Now, listen to the way it continues. I promise we're going to make our way a little bit faster through some of these. All right, now he says in verse four, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So you want to get what you deserve? Boy, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. You want to get what God's promised. Ooh, that's a possibility for real life. That could be what it means to be a Christian. But what about Abraham? What about Abraham? All he did was hear what God said and believed him. You want another hero? Verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. David, are you kidding me? He's the one who killed Goliath. Yeah, he's also the one who slept with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband and then hid it and then pretended a child was his when like nobody else in the world could do the math. He was stupid and he was sinful. Was that what qualified him to be blessed by God? No, what David says is this. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So Abraham and his weakness couldn't provide a kid. God said, I'll give you one. How does Abraham become righteous? He believes that God's telling the truth. Take your other hero, your best king, David. How did he do? Well, when he failed, his blessing wasn't that he said, God, could you ignore this? Because I did some really great stuff too. Could you ignore me screwing up because I built that temple and I really wanted to build, or I built my palace and I really wanted to build up Jerusalem, but I wanted to build the temple. Can't that offset it? And God says, no. The only way this is going to work is if when I look at what you've done, I just forgive it. That's the way you get to be blessed. You see how chapter 4 is unpacking here? This is all what's behind the therefore. Verse 16 then explains it. That's why this all depends on faith. You just hear and believe faith. That's in order that the promise could rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his. This is Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls to existence things that do not exist. Wow, that's a powerful God. You see what else he can do with his word? He can't just promise that sins are forgiven. That's a big deal. And he can do that with his words. He can't just tell somebody who can't produce children, you're going to produce children, and somehow through the speaking of it, he's going to make it happen. That's a big deal. But beyond that, he gives life to dead people and calls into existence things that don't even exist. How did this whole business get its start? The earth is formless and void, and God spoke. And he's been speaking. And Christians listen and Christians believe. That's kind of Paul's point up to this point. So, if we want to rely on our own strength, Paul says, Yeah, how about Abraham? And if we want to rely on our own obedience, Paul says, Yeah, how about David? Are you better than Abraham? Mm, not really. All right, well, he didn't rely on his, his strength. Are you more holy than David? Is your heart more inclined to God than David's was? Mm, I don't know about that. Yeah, he didn't depend on his obedience. So if Abraham didn't and David didn't, then you better not. So it all has to be based on faith. That's the way grace works. That's the way God is drawing and and gathering his people. That's what he does. And so in hope, Abraham is the he, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Therefore, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, since we are justified, made right with God, we get God's righteousness and we don't do it through our works or through our strength, but through our faith. Therefore, and here's where the casserole of Romans five comes in, right? This is a week on hope, but we're talking about peace. Well, since we've been justified with faith, we have peace with God. We'll get to that in two weeks. And we have that through our Lord Jesus Christ and it's through him that we've ab- obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice, we'll get to that next week, but we rejoice in this. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Here's is the first thing we understand about hope from Romans 5. Hope strains toward the future. It is not content with darkness and trouble today. It strains, it yearns, it is always discontent. Hope is not satisfied with what is because it longs for what will be. Listen to the way that Paul talks about this in other places. All right? We're going to try to stay with Paul as much as we can. But in Titus 2, Paul kind of hits this right, uh, right, sort of right between the eyes. The grace of God has appeared. It's talking about Advent. Jesus has come. Bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What are we doing then in that? Waiting for the blessed hope. This is where This is just a great way to start off Christmas. Especially if you think about little kids. You want to strain, you want to hope in a biblical way, be like a toddler. Because a toddler tells you what he wants for Christmas, and then he waits, and he hopes, and he pesters, and he thinks he's not content with his current number of toys. He's not content with what's happening now because he knows what Christmas was like and he knows that Christmas is gonna be great. And so he's yearning for it in a pesty sort of straining sort of way. He sees the future. He knows the future's not here, but he is longing for that future. And Paul says, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The second appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. Hope says, I love the past and I'm grateful for the present, but I'm looking and I'm waiting. If you told someone built on hope, named hope, containing and just overflowing with hope, if you just touched them and and a hope came out and you said, Jesus is not returning, they would die. Because they are Eagerly waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is why Paul says, then in chapter 5, verse 2, we rejoice in hope of this glory. But we're not toddlers anymore, right? We've learned that things are disappointing and we learn to get used to it. That's what it means to mature, right? What it means to mature is to lose your hope, to lose your straining, to lose your waiting and yearning and just be content with where you are. Mature Christians then are content with an ungodly world. Mature Christians are content with a worldly society, with an impulsive and unprincipled society, with an immoral society. We live in this world and we are content with it, right? No, absolutely not. So Paul tells Titus, we train believers to stay like toddlers. We train them to renounce the ungodliness and the worldly passions. We train them to live self-controlled, not impulsive. To live upright, not unprincipled. To live godly lives, not immoral lives. We keep them waiting and yearning and longing. Because they're groaning. That's the world we live in. This dark world, this in the bleak midwinter, all creation groans kind of world. It means that when we mature, we don't lose that sense. As we mature, we become like Aldo. Has anyone ever tented or camped with Aldo? That is the definition of groaning. Aldo, what is it like to tent? Oh, yeah. <laughs> just for a second. Just let's just, just humor me. There's it's just us. We're just friends. <laughs> If you had to sum it up in one word, what it's miserable, it's awful. Do you guys hear Aldo's soul creaking and straining and groaning? I promise you this, if you ever tent with Aldo, I don't think any of us will ever have the privilege of tenting with Aldo again. I arrived here 16 years ago and there was, there was a, a spent groaning in Aldo even back then talk about youth camp. Haven't I paid my dues? <laughs> I've been there. I was, I, uh, he'll tell you about, we've got le- the lap of luxury at youth camp now. He's thinking about when we had to go to Pennsylvania and oh, it's just so bad. Cook's Forest and all this. That's groaning, guys. Be like a toddler and be like Aldo or you have no hope because if you're content In your tent, then you're not really longing for home, are you? Everybody else who camps is broken on some level, is what Aldo would try to tell you. There's something broken that should be restored. There's this sense that we, as Paul says, we live in these tents, and he says, In these tents, we groan. We're miserable. We want something else. And that's what Paul says hope is. It's being miserable. Merry Christmas. No, but do you get, the, do you get the, the burden that's here? If we're reducing hope to wishing for something that we're not sure is really going to happen, then we've missed the bulk of where this starts. When we say at Advent that what Jesus brought to the world was real hope, Then we're saying that God's promises, which would never be broken, were beginning to be fulfilled. Christmas presents, though not fully yet unwrapped, were coming under the tree. And we could shake them a little bit, and we could get a sense of how God was going to do what he was finally going to do to fix the world. That's what it means for us to have hope. And if we have hope like that, then it means we can, can continue to read with Paul in Romans 5 because our hope doesn't just strain towards the future, it boasts then over our sorrows. Another word we're going to redefine is joy. And here we're going to begin to redefine it. When we listen in verse 5, or sorry, in chapter 5 verse 3, where Paul says, "Not only all this are we rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, we're also rejoicing in the water in the tent, in the leaky air mattress. We're rejoicing in the fact that I can see my breath when I'm supposed to be inside. Not only that we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. If you ask a trained athlete, can you finish the race? They don't just say, well, I hope so. They have a hope, they have a confidence. And when the hill comes and the obstacle's there and there's other competitors and there's things that they have to do to be able to complete the race, they boast over those things. Why? Because athletes like that are born That's the way they come into the world. They just have natural talent and you can't be a good athlete unless you're just given natural gifts. That's the way athletes work. It's also the way scholars work. It's also the way most character is produced in the world. People are just born that way and if you're not born with it, tough. It's not the way athletes are made, nor scholars, nor a real character. All of those things come through pressing up against an obstacle that causes pain and difficulty pressing through that with increasing regularity so that you're not just suffering for a little you're suffering in a way that you can endure and then you train yourself through that suffering to endure more and to endure more and to endure more so that in the beginning someone would have said you are kind of fat flabby and out of shape but you have learned you have become strong you have an endurance Where did that come from? Well, I was just lifting chips all day long. But then I put down the chips and I picked up something heavier. And then when I got good at that, I picked up something heavier and I got that. I picked up something heavier. And each time I was suffering a little bit in it, but I learned to become stronger and I learned to be able to endure. Who can do that except for somebody who looks into the future and says, there's a point. Because if there's no point, if there's no hope, you don't boast over your sufferings. You suffer in your sufferings. You don't groan under them. You rot in them. And Paul says, no, if we have that kind of a hope that's straining toward a future that we know is going to come, then what happens when we suffer is that we don't just rejoice over it. My more accurate word here is we boast over it. We scream at it. We rebel against it, and there is a joyful, defiant hope in the middle of it. We have hope, then, that boasts over our sorrows. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes this. He says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If you want to know more about the whole metaphor, I'm picking this right out, but... We're staying faithful to the metaphor. Trust me, just go back and read chapter three. Well, read one, two, and three, and you'll get the idea of what he's doing. But he's essentially saying, Moses was a caretaker in the house. Jesus actually isn't so much a caretaker as it's kind of like his house. He's the son over the house. He's the heir to the house. And guess who the house is? That's us. And we're his house. Then here's the if. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. This is, that's the idea of the joy that Paul's talking about. When we are suffering, we are glad to be suffering like this rather than suffering as those who have no hope. And we would be suffering as those who had no hope if God were a liar, if every promise he made about coming to redeem the world personally wasn't fulfilled in Christ, but it is. And because Jesus has come, then our hope isn't fluffy. It's not wishful thinking. It is something in which we can boast and be, as he says here, confident. So then Paul says to the Corinthians, so we don't lose heart. I mean, yeah, our outer self is wasting away, but our inner self is being renewed day by day because this affliction this suffering it is light and it is momentary because it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory and this eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison not as we look at the things that are seen but at the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal now not exactly a hope passage, is it? Except for it entirely is a hope passage. All that Paul's doing is he's just defining what it looks like for hope to actually function so that we are, we are actually in the process of something that is afflicting us. We're remembering because of our hope, this is light and this is momentary because Christmas is coming. This waiting is difficult, but what's coming is eternal. This is just temporary and fleeting, but that is weighty. And that's what I'm looking for. So I can, I can suffer right now. But in comparison, this is nothing. This is sad, but not permanent. This is difficult, but not breaking. Why? Hope. Jesus spoke this way. He said, blessed are you, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice then and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, this isn't a new idea. It's not as though Jesus came and suddenly believers, followers of God, now have to think of an entirely different way. Because before Jesus, everybody just always was successful, everything always went great. That's not God's people's way. All the prophets, the ones who wrote the Old Testament, who could say, Thus saith the Lord, they were persecuted. And when we are, we're just walking in the same parade they're in. But they had hope, and we do as well. Because ultimately, we rejoice because suffering produces hope. And it's not giddy joy, but it's a confident, boasting joy. It's a hopeful boasting. We have this hope that boasts over our sorrows. And then lastly, we remember that if character produces hope, hope beats shame every time. Without hope, the only thing that will ring out into the future when your story is told will utterly embarrass you. Without hope, your legacy will be one that should absolutely terrify you and you should work as hard as you can to scrub it from existence so that no one can know your story if you have no hope. But if we have hope, then every moment we're like Abraham, weak, every moment we're like David, sinful, every one of those moments does not have to reduce result in our being ashamed but ultimately that god would be glorified because of the way he dealt with our weakness and the way that he dealt with our sin almost that weakness and sin are what qualify us in for a relationship with god as opposed to our success and our strength and all of our, our all of our victories and all of the ways that we've accomplished things instead what do we do with our shame well hope doesn't put us to shame why Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's why Paul, when he was facing his death, writing from prison, speaking to the Philippians, could say, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But with Full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Is that because Paul was pointing and saying, I'm so perfect. And if you thoroughly went through my record, you would find nothing but perfection, and therefore I won't be ashamed. No. When Paul told his story, he knew he had a lot to be ashamed about. But the reason that he wouldn't be ashamed is because he could have this hopeful, courageous perspective on his past. And he could remember this from chapter 5, verse 5. God's love dealt with all of that. And not just at the surface level. God's love wasn't just like kind of like a shower for a guy with cancer. It wasn't sort of just cleaning off the outside, even though everything inside was sickly and decaying. God's love, according to Paul, has been like medicine poured into us. It's been something that so thoroughly fills us that he could say that work is the actual work of the one that was hovering over the creation at the very beginning. God's spirit is hovering over the deep waters. And when God spoke, what would the spirit do? Same one's working inside you. That's how powerful God's antidote is to what dwells inside you, that should so deeply shame you. That thing that when it comes up, could wake you up and put you in a chill and make you just think, if this came out, if this was what I was known by, if this was what was on my tombstone, I would just just I would just, I would just rather disappear from existence than have to be known by that. As though every time your story was sung, that's what would fill the earth or fill the room. But what we sang was, that You will reign forever. So let your glory fill the earth. And one of the things that God weds to his glory is his redemptive work. Jesus was going to be lifted up, and the point of his exaltation came on a cross. And it was that point of his great glory that we recognize our sin was dealt with. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to remind you every single time that failure comes up, every single time that weakness shows up again in another relationship, the Holy Spirit is there to say, God still loves you. And you say, "How, how, how do I know? My story is so pot marked with failure and weakness. How can I be sure? Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Speaking of those who don't believe that, he said, they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over a stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says that in chapter 9, and he repeats it again in the passage I just read in chapter 10. Twice Paul quotes the Old Testament, and says, You want not to be ashamed? Hope in God. That's the formula. You want to face up to your weakness and your fear. You want not to have to be ashamed by it. The only way is this everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. It is my eager expectation and hope then that I will not be ashamed. Why? Because Paul was speaking with the voice of the Holy Spirit inside him that is perpetually telling him, You are loved. Despite it all. And if you think just because I'm trying to be a Christian preacher that I'm sort of trying to cram the gospel into any text, why don't we just go to the next verse? Because what Paul says in chapter 5 verse 6 is that while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for you in this. While you were actively doing that thing that would terrify you, Christ died for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, we speak with the voice of the psalmist. Our soul waits for the Lord. For you are our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in you because we trust in your holy name. So let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you.